0: Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and we just want to sit at your feet today, Lord, and hear from you. Lord, please speak to our hearts as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to work through the first half of chapter 11 today, the first 19 verses, and uh, it's just a great chapter, great book. I'm enjoying Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews was written to first century Hebrew by uh, culture, by religion, by nationality people who became Christians. So you got Jewish people and all the stuff that goes with Judaism who received Jesus as their Savior. And they would have had, as you can imagine, tremendous uh, social pressure, tremendous family pressure, tremendous, uh, maybe just within their own hearts, pressure to sort of receive Jesus and yet still go back to... Jesus and their Jewish religious system and as we've talked before we all have our own sort of religious system whether we recognize it or not or even whether we admit it or not we have our religious expectations our religious culture our religious traditions um, just all of that and so um, the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to encourage these folks and us that Jesus is all we need, and so much so that Jesus is actually infinitely better than that Jewish system. And so we've kind of taken it apart uh, a piece at a time, if you will, through, as we go through this book, and it reminds us that Jesus is better than our religious system. So Jesus was better than the Angels. Jesus was better than the prophets. Jesus was better than Moses. Jesus was better than Abraham. Jesus's uh, sanctuary, uh, the heavenly sanctuary, is better than the tabernacle, and the holy of holies within the tabernacle. And uh, finally, uh, last week we talked about Jesus's sacrifice was infinitely better than any of the Old Testament animal sacrifices, and it was complete for the work of salvation in us. And then he. just to highlight verse 19, our response to that, verse 19 of chapter 10, our response to that ultimate sacrifice of Jesus should be, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. And so we, we enter by faith. We enter by faith. We enter into that relationship with Jesus. Pictured in the Old Testament as the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies, we enter into a personal, uh, I wouldn't say non-religious, but, but much more, infinitely more a relationship than a religion. We enter into a personal relationship with Jesus because of his great sacrifice. And so again, as you're... Uh, keep in mind, we're trying to persuade the Jewish Christian, the first century Jewish Christian. And one of the things that the first century Jewish Christian would have said would have been, yeah, but what about all those uh, Old Testament heroes that we have? And so the next step that the writer is going to go into is he's going to go through, some of Some of you have heard this referred to as the hall of faith. Well, you know, that's an okay term. It's not... It, it's not a great term in terms of how we think of Hall, like our Hall of Fame, right, is where all the best go to, right? The Baseball Hall of Fame is where all the best baseball players go to. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is where all the best rock and rollers go to, right? Um, and all of that. So this is not necessarily all-encompassing list, but it's just a list of people that the Lord has, has chosen to use as examples as those guys live by faith. They didn't live by religion. And so as we enter into that relationship with Jesus, we're doing it by faith. I mean, don't we know that? Seriously, just think about it for a second. Do we? It's like we know it, and yet we don't know it. We know it, but we don't live like we know it, right? We enter into a relationship with Jesus because of grace. It's by grace you've been saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2. We enter into that relationship with Jesus completely based on His grace. And we just say, thanks. But deep down, we kind of think maybe He'll like us more if we don't cuss. Or He'll like us more if we, you know, whatever our religious list is. And the reality is, no, we're saved by grace. We have a relationship with him that's all about his grace. And our life is to just be a response to the fact that we appreciate his grace. And so that's basically how these Old Testament uh, people approached God was through faith. They didn't have Jesus. They, were, they looked forward to Jesus, but we look back to Jesus, and, uh, but it's still the same faith. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so we see that, we hear that referenced a lot of times as sort of a definition of faith. It's, it's more of a description of faith. It's not all-encompassing by any means. But uh, the idea is substance. The, uh, the faith is the substance of things hoped for. The word substance means support or foundation, right? It's like we place our hope in Jesus, we place our, we, we stand on Jesus. Jesus, remember Matthew chapter seven, he says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Jesus so often is referred to as the rock. He's the foundation. He's the pillar that we, that we place our hope in. So uh, faith is the, is the substance, is the support, is the foundation of things hoped for. And what do we hope for? We hope for Jesus. We put our hope in Jesus by obeying his word and we stand on it. You know, we all have faith, right? In lots of ways. You came in this morning, you plopped down on a chair. How did you know this chair was supportive enough to take care of you, right? Years ago, we had chairs in our kitchen. it has been 20 years ago. Had a pregnant woman over for dinner, us exercising the gift of hospitality, We watched her go to the ground. (laughs) We bought new chairs. (laughs) Right? You sat down here. You had faith that the chair would support you. Right? You have faith that the roof isn't going to collapse even right now. Right? We all have faith. And here's the kicker. It's evidenced by what we do and how we live. We all, every day, give evidence of what we have our faith in. Do I have my faith in my ability to manipulate and work the situation and the strategy and all of that? Or do I have my faith in me? Do I have my faith in God? Or do I have my faith in my faith? Right? It gets kind of muddy, right? I need to place my faith in God. He's the author and finisher of my faith. Chapter 12 is gonna tell us. And so, um, it's very important that we are living as if we trust Jesus. So often we, we say we trust Jesus, but sometimes our lives don't always reflect that. Sometimes it's easy to acknowledge Jesus and yet trust myself. You know, at the end of the day, I'm pretty, I think I'm a pretty smart guy. I was gonna bring up my shirt, somebody got me a t-shirt as a present, it said I'm silently correcting your grammar because it was pointed out a couple weeks ago that I'm a grammar snob, right? I don't correct any your grammar. <laughs> out loud, thank you. <laughs> Better move on. It's easy for me to trust in myself. I I feel secure when I trust in myself. But I need to trust in God. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Evidence means conviction. It means I'm settled on that which I don't see. It means that I'm settled on the fact that God will do what He says He's going to do, even if I don't see it or understand it. Do you understand everything God is doing? I sure don't. I have an idea. Oftentimes, I have his word that kind of tells me about who he is and his character. But there's a lot of God's perspective that I don't really fully understand. But I can trust in his goodness. I can trust in his character. And when I don't understand a situation, can I encourage us in this? If you're in a situation and you don't understand all the details or how is this going to work out or this seems tense or this seems, you know, weird or uncertain or anything like that, But I can trust that God is good. I can trust that God loves me. I can trust that I'm saved by grace. And I can just go back, I can take my brain literally back to those foundational truths and live accordingly. That's living by faith. And we all have that available to us. And yet, admittedly, we all don't see the big picture sometimes. He says, for by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. So now he's going to move into talking about the elders, the, the, the forefathers uh, and that sort of thing. But notice this, they obtained a good testimony. We want a good testimony. Do we not? Yes. Well, what is a good testimony? A good testimony is when we live our lives in such a way that, not like people will look up to us, but it's like we, we our lives give honor to what God can do in a human sinner. Does that make sense? You show me, you've heard me say this before. You show me a 80-year-old Christian that's walked faithfully with the Lord for 80 years or however many years, and that gets my attention. That makes me say, oh yeah, that's awesome. And I know enough about me and my flesh that if I ever become that guy, then I know it's a work of the Lord. By faith, I obtain a good testimony. And not by anything I do to try to make it happen, but by faith I obtain a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So we have the, the really the, the things that we see visibly were framed by the word of God and the word of God, the spoken word of God was not a visible word of God. Now we understand that a little more now maybe in our world of AI, right? Because what's seen is maybe not seen, right? Maybe can you really trust what you see? see a picture of somebody, is that really them? Never know. Maybe if you're sitting here. You know, I've, I've even heard, like, I can click. There's some sites or whatever. I don't know what they are. Nate knows them. Uh, click on some sites. says, uh, give me a sermon for Hebrews chapter 11, 1 through 19. How do you know I'm not given that one? How do you know it's me? Because I rabbit trail. Because <laughs> I told that awesome joke at the beginning. That's how you know. I did that for authenticity purposes. Right? Yeah, how do you know it's me? No computer could do this. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yeah. That's my boy. So, we have this, this idea that the word... Was spoken The spoken word of God created the visible world that we now see. Are we okay with that? Yeah. You know, it takes faith to accept that. I was talking to a guy in my office a couple of years ago. Not a believer. Very smart guy. Very sort of logical, analytical. Um, and he said, you know, I grew up going to church. My parents made me go and blah, 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 blah. And then by the time I got old enough to sort of assess things. He said, "We, we had a Bible. I read the Bible. He said, I couldn't get past the first page. I couldn't get past the first page. And you know what that was? That was honest. That was honest. Because oftentimes, we maybe live the Christian life. We want to receive Jesus and all that, but we can't get, in our minds, we're not settled on the first page. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Are we okay with that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who would have thought that that's a controversial statement? But it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We have to receive that by faith. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And so, sometimes God works in ways that are clearly seen with our eyes. Sometimes he doesn't. We need to obey his word regardless and receive his word regardless. So he's going into some of these examples, and we'll go through some of these uh, for the next few verses. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, being dead, still speaks. So you say, where's that? Well, it's in Genesis chapter 4. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to flip back and forth here a bit between Hebrews and Genesis, so bear with me. You know, we hear about Cain and Abel and some of that sort of, you know, some of the background related to them and, and all that, so I thought it would just be good maybe to go to the source. Genesis chapter 4, everybody right there? Starting verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Let me pause just for a second. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve sinned, God gave the first prophecy that a Messiah would come. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between your seed and her seed, her seed being capitalized, obviously, in our Bibles. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so the message that Eve would have received from that was, you know, there's going to be a descendant of mine who's going to fight with Satan, the ultimate force of evil, and in a sense, restore what Adam and I ruined here in the garden. Okay? So is that, and is that true? Was there a descendant of Eve that took care of all that? took care of that Genesis chapter 3 sin problem. Yeah, there's a descendant of Eve. The problem was Eve thought it was going to be like her child, okay? And so if you read this, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain and she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. The, The proper translation commentators tell us is, I have acquired the man from the Lord. And so many commentators believe that She was even convinced that maybe Cain was the Messiah. And I I bring that out to say, how often do we see, like, we think we see the picture. We think we see the plot play out, right? But it's, the the plot is so much greater. So much greater. And so, uh, be careful. Let me just say this. Be careful to think we've got God all figured out. To me, that's a recurring theme of this, of this life of faith that we live. Be careful to think you got God all figured out. Because we all have expectations of what we think God does and how God ought to work and what God ought to do. And so often, we're like Eve thinking that our baby Cain, the murderer, by the way, is the Messiah. So anyway, and she bore again, this time his brother. Abel now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the first fruit, firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now, we don't know why God respected Abel's offering but he didn't respect Cain's offering but we do know this, Cain knew why. Cain knew why. Cain knew that God respected Abel's offering and Cain knew that God didn't respect Cain's offering. Some was And there's lots of speculation on this. You know, Abel was a sheep breeder. Some say, um, you know, that God, you know, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, uh, Hebrews tells us. And so maybe it's because Abel was the animal farmer and Cain was the plant farmer, that the plant offering wasn't as good. But, you know, the counter argument to that is that there was a grain offering in the Old Testament Levitical law. And so we really don't know. But we do know that Cain knew that his offering was not pleasing to God. And we know that Cain became angry. And we know that his countenance fell. And so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And so what we see here from Cain is a couple of things. Number one, he knew that his offering was not pleasing to God and how he responded revealed his heart. I don't know about you, but in my life, how I respond to uh, rebuke, reveal some things, right? I got to respond rightly, right? If God is not pleased with something and I get corrected or disciplined in some way or have some consequence in some way, how I respond to that is, is number one, it's very important Number two, it's very revealing. I heard. I have a pastor friend. He 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 always says uh, tr- uh, trials uh, test character. They also reveal character. And so, just be aware of that. And even in this, God is trying to bring Cain into a position of repentance, uh, but he's not interested. Cain is a picture, I believe, of you, you know. Cain brought an offering to the Lord. Cain is serving the Lord. Cain is acknowledging the Lord. Cain is having a dialogue with the Lord, but he wants to do it his way. And if God doesn't take his way, Cain gets upset. Cain is a picture, If just think of it like this, Cain is a picture of, I want to serve God my way. Do we ever do that, religious people? I want to serve God my way. I'm going to decide how this relationship thing works. God may say, bring an offering of the animals. I'm going to bring an offering of the ground. Right? God writes the rules. Fair enough? If we're going to accept this Hebrews chapter 11 walk of faith, if we're going to be uh, people who have a good testimony as, as the, the elders who obtain a good testimony, if we're going to be those people, we've got to get used to the idea that God writes the rules. God's word is true. God's word is real. God's word is reliable. God's word reflects his loving, gracious character. But we got to be okay that God writes the rules. Right? Well, I want a, I want a, a little more of a tropical ministry. Right? I'm going to, you know, whatever, whatever your thing is, be careful not to demand your own way. That's what Cain did. So back to Hebrews. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, of Abel's gifts, and through it, being dead, he still speaks. You like this? Abel still speaks. How do we know Abel still speaks? Because we today, 2023, are reading the testimony of, of Abel written by the writer of Hebrews. So it's a great reminder that uh, Abel's legacy lives on. By faith Enoch was taken so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken he had this testimony that he pleased God. So back to Genesis chapter 5 this time. Starting in verse 21. So this chapter, uh, if you've read through this chapter, basically, you know, starts out this, is the genealogy of Adam, and then, you know, then came Abel, and then came all these guys, and they all lived, you know, to be a bazillion years old, and then they had sons and daughters, and then they died, and it just goes on down the list, and, and so-and-so lived so many years, and then he begot so-and-so, and then he died, and then you come to verse 21, and you see a sort of a break in the narrative of, of living and dying, and Enoch lived 65 years, and he begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That is the sum total of Enoch's biography. Now, I think that's kind of cool. Because at the end of the day, we all, have a, we, we all have a summary statement, right? We all have a summary statement. Do you, I mean, Enoch lived 365 years. I think there's maybe more to be said. Like, I want to know if he was a good golfer, right? Or if he was, you know, a fun guy. What was his sense of humor like? What, what, you know, how tall was he? All those kinds of things. None of that's, none of that matters, right? Here's what matters. He walked with God. He walked with God. And he was taken. He, he walked with God and he was not for God took him. Enoch went straight to heaven. He, he skipped death. Imagine. Walking with God being your one sentence summary of life. And then that, may, in my mind, that makes me reflect then. What does that look like day to day? If someone, would, if someone were to say to me after, let's say I live to be 100, I'm, I'm hoping for 100 or the rapture. So in that case, I'd be hoping for 61. But what if I, it was said to me that I walked with God? at 100. What would that look like? What would today's piece of that look like? Because today's a piece of that. It's a walk of faith. It's a walk of, you know, God, I don't know everything. I don't even know everything that you're going to do today in my life. But I know that you're good. You're going to take care of it. You've laid down some principles for me to live by. So I'm just going to do it. And by the end of that, I'll obtain a good testimony. Something like, He walked with God. But it says here Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death, and he was found because God had taken him. Was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He walked with God, and he pleased God. That's the the Old Testament and New Testament summary of this man's life. Curiously, uh, the only other guy that skipped death was Elijah. And so, if you care to know, uh, in Revelation chapter 11, we see reference to two witnesses, right? And many people think that those are uh, Elijah and Enoch because they didn't have their earthly death. That's just speculation. Verse 6. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Again, faith comes back to uh, just recognizing that God is, recognizing that God created the world, recognizing that God works in my life. And it's required to walk by faith in order to please God because God is invisible. So not to sound like a broken record, But, I have to decide. Am I going to trust my senses, my intellect, my abilities, my feelings, and obey them? Or am I going to trust God? You know, we are pretty good at self-preservation. Are we not? We're really very good at it. We're probably better at it than we'd like to admit. If you offend me, which none of you in the room far and wide from east to west have never offended me, right? But if you offend me, I have this ability to, at least in my own mind or my own heart, to build up this response, right? I'm very good at self-preservation. I've got to decide, that without faith it's impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if I diligently seek him, I'm gonna get a reward. What's the ultimate reward of, of diligently seeking God? Finding him, right? Right? He's a rewarder if I seek him. The reward is I find him, right? Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen to 14 says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. There's no better reward than that than finding Jesus. Verse seven. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So Noah was divinely warned of, of a flood. Some, th- some people say he was divinely warned of things not yet seen means that it had never rained up until that time. Nobody really knows that for sure, and it's not, it'd be hard to make a, a firm biblical stance on that, but that's possible. But we do know that Noah was warned at least of a flood that had not been seen yet on earth, and his, God's, his faith in God's word moved him to obedience. Genesis 6, 22 says this, Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Let that be said of us. And then, you know, imagine, he says he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to truth. And so, would he have condemned the world? Maybe not even by speaking, right? Uh, some, some say that he would have spent probably about 70 years building the ark. It's... Not, exact, not exactly spelled out in the scripture, but somewhere around 70 years. Building the ark, no doubt answering those, those questions, right? What are you doing? Well, I'm building an ark. Why are you building an ark? Because God told me to. Why did God tell you to? Because there's going to be a great flood, it's going to be a great judgment, and everybody else in the world is going to die except me and my family. Right? You know those conversations happened. Lots of them probably happened. And so he condemned the world, but then also he became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And so uh, we're all descended from Noah, right? And especially in our righteousness, we're descended from Noah. Our lives, let me just prepare us for this. Our lives, if we live lives of faith, if we live by faith, the way we're talking about these guys living, there will be people that just don't like it. There will be people, if, if we live by faith, if we truly live by faith, there will be people, sometimes loved ones, that just can't handle sometimes even being around us. I'm convinced... You walk in a room, the Holy Spirit comes with you, right? Because he indwells us, right? You walk into a dark room, right? Light shines in the darkness, right? John chapter 3, darkness doesn't like it. Darkness doesn't like exposure. And by faith, Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household, God bless him, by which he condemned the world maybe even without, without a sermon. But if we're not, you know, if we're walking by faith, it's going to mess with people. And that's okay. That's okay. And what it'll do is it'll send a message. And there'll be, there'll be, just like the soils, there'll be some soil that'll be receptive to it and some soil that won't. And that's just how life works. We got to be okay with that. That's part of the the walk by faith that, you know, God works out the details and we don't know them all. But that's okay. Our lives should give lots of preaching opportunities. There should be some extent to which people look at us and say, you know, that's kind of weird. Maybe even Christians. You know, that's kind of weird. Well, I think it's what the Lord showed me, and that's okay. If you're a good Jewish person, you grow up uh, with all that Jewish culture, who's the father of faith that you would say? Father Abraham. By faith, Abraham <coughs> obeyed when he was called out to go to the place that he, which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, from this Abraham part, I want us to catch this. We are reading New Testament commentary on an Old Testament character. Fair enough? We see the biography of the Old Testament character in where? The Old Testament. We're seeing the commentary on it in the New Testament. Keep that clear in our heads. Fair enough? The New Testament is God has given us sort of a a summary statement, sort of an overview, sort of a, a recollection, if you will, of Abraham's life. But back in Genesis, we see the details of Abraham's life. Why do I say that? Because Abraham was regarded as such a great man of faith. And, and I love, and that's, no, I mean, I would hope to be half as faithful as Abraham, right? But Abraham had some pretty major slip-ups. Abraham had some pretty major slip-ups. So, look at Genesis. I want to trace, if you will, some of, this, uh, some of this Abraham history. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to flip back and forth here a little bit, but bear with me. Just chapter 4, starting verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there's a lot in there. We've talked about this before, right? God says, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. Uh, again, the descendants of Abraham, that plays out as uh, a great foreign policy uh, position, as it relates to even our our contemporary time, and we see that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a promise of the Messiah. But if you back up a little bit, what was the command given to Abraham? Now, the Lord had said to Abram. so prior to this chapter 12, verse 1, he says, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land I will show you, all right? Leave your father's house, leave your family, go to the land I'm going to show you. We know that because we know the full story to be the promised land, right? Modern day Israel, right? Right. Turn over to Acts chapter 7. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, we pick up where uh, the church has been birthed, the Holy Spirit has come, uh, the uh, persecution is starting to come a little bit, and the first martyr we know to be Stephen. And Stephen's arrested, and... They're going to start to interrogate him about Christianity and he's going back and he's given a little bit of Old Testament history and he talks about this reference in chapter 12 to Abraham. So the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, right? So Acts chapter 7 starting verse 2, and he, Stephen, said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And said to him, get out of your country, the words we just read, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, out of Mesopotamia, and dwelt in the land, dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved on, moved him to this land, which you now dwell. Okay? So I don't have a map, but pretend that I'll I'll reverse it from me to you. So for your benefit. Fair enough? Israel's here, right? Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, we'll say, is over here. Fair enough? So when he was in um, Mesopotamia, he's over here. God says, I want you to leave your father's house, leave all your family, and go to a land I'm going to show you. We know that to be the promised land, right? So what he did is he went from Mesopotamia and passed through to the, um, and he parted to go to the land of Canaan. They departed to go to Canaan, to modern-day Israel. So they came to the land of Canaan, and he passed through the land. No, I'm sorry. I was reading the wrong verse. Came out of the land of the Chaldeans, out of Mesopotamia, and dwelt in the land of Haran, north of of Canaan, dwelt in the land of Haran, and from there, basically after father died, then he moved on to the promised land, okay? Now, does that sound like splitting hairs? Maybe. The point is, did Abraham fully obey God the first time he said, when he had said, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land I will show you? No, he kind of took dad and took Lot along with him, right? Part of his family. That just added a little drama, right? Sometimes extra family adds a little drama, right? It's fun drama, but sometimes that added a little extra drama, right? So out of Mesopotamia, he stops at Haran, and then after dad dies, he moves on down into the promised land, as he was told. What's the point in all that? Why do I bring all that up? Because I love how God tells a story. I love how God tells a story. You know, if God told the full story about me, well, you know, he was a jerk that one time and then that other time, then that other time. And we told him to do this and he sort of did it and then was a jerk again. And then blue is cool, and then this challenge came. I mean, that's how I'd write my story, right? You wouldn't write my story that way, but I would, right? You might write your own story that way. How does God write his story?
1: He says, by faith,
0: Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Just sounds like honest Abe said, sure, whatever, I'm all in. I'm I'm wholehearted, faithful to the end. Right? And he was ultimately, but there's a little bit of process in there. Now did God tell us is God lying by telling us just sort of part of the story? No. What have we read in chapter eight and chapter ten of, of Hebrews? He remembers our sins no more. God chooses to remember honestly a picture of our lives through his grace. Through his grace. And so the New Testament commentary on Abraham is through the eyes of grace, even though uh, the Bible's very honest to tell us uh, the limitations of some of his people. It's not that he's telling a partial truth, it's, it's that he's telling us what he sees. And it, it's, a great, it's a great commentary on the character of God. Verse nine, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And so by faith Abraham dwelt in that land. And, the, and that promise of the promised land was passed on to Isaac and Jacob. Verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so uh, Abraham is a pic- picture of a sojourner. He was, he was there, he settled into the promised land, but it was never really his home. His final home is heaven. Abram was a pilgrim. He always built tents wherever he went, Right? Never too anchored into this world. Can I tell you, one of the keys to living a life of faith is to don't get too anchored to this world. I love this world. I love where I live. We're, you know, we're talking about this this weekend. I love where I live. I love this town. I love you guys. I love this church. I love my family. I love this life, and I am thankful for this life. Yeah, there are ups and downs. There are challenges and victories and all that. I get all that. But I don't want to be too anchored to this world. Abraham is a guy that lived in tents. And it's okay if we don't live in a tent, right? But don't get too anchored. By faith, Sarah, verse 11. Also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him, God, faithful, who had promised. Now, Sarah's another interesting one. And let me just say this on Sarah. Sometimes when we talk about faith, and you've heard me talk about this a little bit lately, Sometimes when we talk about faith, we equate faith with confidence, like I'm standing on faith, right? You ever do that? Do, we do that? do we do that in our Christian song and dance? We got a Christian song and dance, believe me, right? And we do it. We got all the right vocabulary, praise the Lord, brother, right? Like, oh, amen, <laughs> hallelujah, <laughs> glory, glory. We got the whole vocabulary, we got the cadence, you know, all that. They've mocked us for it over the years. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's kind of funny. But one of the things in our Christian song and dance is that we lift up our faith. And one of the reasons, if we're not careful why I will maybe project such great faith is because it makes me look like a great man of faith, right? And it makes you say, oh, pastor, you're awesome. And I say things like, oh, yeah, not really. (laughs) Not that awesome. Just kind of awesome, right? We all do that. Do we not all do that? If we're honest with ourselves, we all do that. We all want people to say we're awesome, straight up. And so we we sometimes talk about our faith like <clears throat> like if you would ever have any doubt or second thoughts about how something's going to work out, then I, if I'm not careful, I can kind of talk to you kind of condescendingly because you're kind of a you're kind of a junior varsity player. On this Christian team, we have. Do we do that? Yes. Shame on us if we do that. Shame on me if I do that. What if we look to the scripture for how God describes all this? He says, By faith, Sarah. So, let's talk about Sarah. Let's bust Sarah for a minute. Can we bust Sarah for a minute? Yeah. Genesis chapter 12. <coughs> So Genesis chapter 12, we're going to to kind of recount the story here for a minute. So we're going to blow through some some verses, so bear with me and try to catch the, the narrative. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So part of this promise in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abram, You're going to have descendants and they're going to live in this land. All right? This land that I'm telling you to go to, you're going to have descendants. You're going to have offspring. Now, Abram was 75 years old at the time and he had no children. Now, I'm not 75 yet. Right? But I don't think when I get to be 75, I'm not going to plan on having any kids. Right? That'd be awesome. But short of a miracle, probably won't happen. And you ever notice... Sometimes God's word seems to contradict your circumstances or your perceptions, right? I mean, even if I was Abraham, even in that day, you know, where people lived long lives and, you know, some of that sort of thing, if God came to me at 75 years of age and said, you're going to have descendants, in my mind, I'd have to think like Abraham did. Like, oh, you must be talking about like, you know, not literal descendants, right? So that was chapter 12. Flip over to chapter 15. God confirms again with Abraham, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless? Hey, God, you gave me this promise, and it still hasn't come to pass. I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, You've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So my heir, you must be talking about this guy, Eleazar from Damascus. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And look at this. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it for, to him for righteousness. One of the pivotal verses related to Abram. So, God says, it's not going to be through this servant in your household. It's going to be one of your physical descendants. You're going to be the physical father of all these descendants who are going to be greater than the number of stars in the sky. Abram says, all right, cool. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had born no children by this time. And she had an Egyptian maid servant, whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. He said, yeah, whatever. Then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So Abram's about 85 by this time. Sarah's about 75. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So God told Abram, it's not going to be from Eleazar that all these descendants you're going to have. It's going to be from your own seed. So Sarah says, after 10 years go by, Sarah says, must be your seed and not you and me must be you and Hagar, must be my problem, right? So let's just bring Hagar in here, we'll fix it, and it's a great picture of a man trying to help God out, which is never a good idea. Chapter 18. Abram and... Sarah, and now Ishmael's born by this time. They're sitting around the house, around the tent, and uh, three visitors come to visit, right? And they, verse 9, we pick it up. These three visitors, they say, hey, Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, she's here in the tent. And he said, now it's he, one of the three, said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So it's not Eleazar, it's not from Hagar, it's from you and Sarah. Now Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, Ha, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord, that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So that was one of the three guys. Said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. According to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. You imagine arguing with God face to face? Oh my goodness. So, Sarah has the brilliant idea to come up with this Hagar thing, right? Let's have a surrogate relationship, because surely God's not capable of, you know, giving us children because that's what my circumstances say and then by the time the lord does come and say no you you guys are going to have a child she says no 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 and she laughs and then she says I didn't laugh so finally when Isaac is born Abraham and Sarah are 190 flip back to hebrews keep in mind keep in mind When Abraham and Sarah were 25 and 35, they never had children, right? When they were 30 and 40, they never had children. They never had children all those years. So we always think of it as this great miracle that God performed that Abraham and Sarah were 190, but it's even greater than we give it credit for because they never had children during even those reproductive years, if you will. So they had long decided that they would never have children but God said they would. Hebrews 11.11, by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, I don't want to get too weird or graphic, okay, but I I, I think this needs to be brought out. It doesn't say she received the strength to bear the child, right? Although she did, right? God birthed the child Isaac through Sarah, right? It says she received the strength to receive this, by Sarah herself, received the strength to conceive seed. It's like she became a willing participant in having a child at the age of 90, right? Why? Because God said so. And here's what's amazing, again, God's grace. That's the part God remembers, right? All the stuff I, I read, right? We, God shows that to us for our education because he knows that we're frail too. And we sometimes argue with God. And sometimes we come up with our own plan to sort of kind of obey, to sort of help God work things out. But at the end of the day, all God tells us here is, you know what, she received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was past the age. Why? Because she judged God faithful who had promised. It's amazing that she came to that point in her journey, but it's also, to me, it's more amazing that this is how God describes Sarah's life. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, So when I do make it to be a hundred, right, God will refer to me as good as dead. We're born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So God always has his way. God always carries out his plan. And the reason I read all that Genesis stuff is just to point out, We throw bumps in the road and curves in the road of what God is trying to do and our own frailty, even as we're trying to figure it out and trying to navigate and trying to walk by faith. But at the end of the day, God has his way. It's a great picture. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seed from afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind what country they were from, uh, cu- the country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not a- ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so these examples are all given to us, the idea that, that uh, our lives here are temporary. We are pilgrims. And we desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. And one final story, and then we'll wrap up. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it, is, it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now flip over to Genesis 22. Keep in mind, the process from Genesis chapter 12, when God says, "Hey, I'm going to bless you and all that," to the birth of Isaac was 25 years. And now Isaac has grown up to be uh, different people speculate, but Isaac is, is probably uh, a grown up by this point. And we read these words. Now it has come to pass now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, "Abraham." And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on, me, uh, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off and Abraham said to his young son to his young men I'm sorry stay here with the donkey the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you so obviously there's a lot I mean we could talk about this these five verses forever right and I won't but The point is, 25 years of promise, God said, you're going to have descendants that are going to fill this land and beyond. And then he goes and comes again. He says, you're going to have so many descendants, it's going to be more than the stars of the sky. And then he comes back and he says, oh, by the way, they're not going to be descended from Eliezer, your servant. They're going to be from your seed. And then he's going to come back and he says, no, 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 I didn't mean yours and Hagar's seed. I mean yours and Sarah's seed. And So he and Sarah have this miraculous son and now this son has grown up to be a a young man and now everything's awesome. And it's taken, you know, whatever Isaac's age is, plus 25 years to accomplish this process. And now God says, all right, I want you to kill him. What? 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 Notice just a couple of things I want to point out. He says here, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, Abraham had another son, Ishmael. Ishmael's a type, a a picture of the work of the flesh, man's effort to help God out, right? Just like Cain is a picture of serving God your own way. Ishmael's a picture of helping God out, a picture of the work of the flesh. God ignores the works of the flesh. And so he's literally saying here, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. God loves Ishmael. God had a plan for Ishmael, all of that. But in this setting, he's talking, he's talking to make that point. And then Abraham leaves the servants. And by this time, Abraham has had enough of a walk with God with all the ups and downs, all the, all the mistakes and all the victories that he's able to tell the servants, basically, you guys stay here. We're going to go and we're going to worship the Lord. And in his mind, I'm going to go kill my son. And then he says, we will come back to you. Abraham didn't know how it was going to work out. He didn't know if he was going to resurrect Isaac. What he knew was this. All he knew was what he knew. Was that God told him that Isaac would be the line through which he would have all these descendants. That's all he knew. And how often is that a picture for us? That we know a certain thing, but we don't know how it'll work out. And we would do well to just say, that thing's going to happen. Not, well, you know what, if we play our cards right and, you know, the stars line up and everything's good and the stock market's high and, you know, and if we do this and and if everything works out and all the relationships come together and all this, then I think it'll all work out. We're better off to just say, I don't know how it's gonna work out, but God said this. So it's gonna work out. Abraham lived out his faith by simple obedience to God and the idea that God would work it out. And that's really our life project. That's our life project, is to let God have the details. Our job is just to obey. Our walk of faith is a walk of obedience to God's word. So be careful about equating faith with some type of hyper-Christian Superman thing. Sooner or later, they'll know you're faking. Sooner or later. If you do that hyper-Christian Superman, great man of faith thing, I am talking. I did say man of faith because, you know, the guys are the ones that are all full of pride. So I'm talking to us now. If you do the hyper-faith Superman thing, sooner or later, they're going to see right through it. Don't equate faith with some super-Christian identity. God wants us to simply obey his word and let him sort out the details and the challenges. And please, 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 if there's a lesson from this chapter... Don't hold too tightly to this world or to this life. The next one is way better. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you're so good to us, that you work out the details and we just have to trust you. And even in that, Lord, you give so much grace, even as you describe these people, we can imagine that you'll describe us with the same amount of grace. And so, Lord, we're thankful for who you are and who you tolerate us to be. And not only tolerate, but you love us. And not only do you love us, but you, t- you sent your son to die for us. And you give us your word to guide us, to lead us, a lamp into our feet, and a light into our path. You give us your Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to live this Christian life. Lord, we're thankful for your goodness. Have your way with us this week, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.